Good afternoon and welcome to the Court of Appeals. Um, your panel this afternoon is to my right, Judge Fred Gore. To my left, Judge Michael Stodding. My name is John Tyson. We have one case on the docket this afternoon for argument. State versus Wingate. Are there any preliminary matters to come before the court? Okay, hearing none, then we will hear from the appellate. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And may it please the court, I'm Assistant Appellate Defender Candace Washington. I represent the appellant, Mr. Wingate, and I would like to reserve seven minutes of my time for rebuttal. Okay. The General Legislature codified the Castle Doctrine to give people more protection in the home in the event they need to defend themselves. Mr. Wingate lawfully availed himself of the protections provided by section 14-51.2 when Mr. Lewis entered Mr. Wingate's yard, threatened him, and charged at him despite being told to stop. Counsel, how does, how does uh, the defendant and the facts that he appears to have started off on his porch, stepped within the doorway as the allegation alleged, uh, which would have further provided some protections to him and stayed in the home and then came back out. How does those facts say that he is following or being compliant with those protections? Well, if we're talking about stepping in and stepping back out, I don't yes. think that makes much difference because when we talk about the home, that includes the cartilage. So mm -hmm. if he's stepping in and out, he's still within like the cartilage of his home. So I guess that would bleed over to the other issue as far as the instigator argument. How would him staying in his home, just basically boiling it down, wouldn't it would have availed him to those protections if he would have just stayed in his home? I think he would have the protection either way because we're talking so, about staying. So let's, let's take it step by step then. So how does mm -hmm. him stepping back out not undermine those protections? because he has the right to defend himself within his home. That's still in the home. There's no duty to retreat. So I, I feel like saying that he was like required to stay in the house or like go back in the house is getting at like an argument that he was supposed to retreat before he defended himself. I'm not saying supposed to, I'm just saying from mm -hmm. a common sense perspective. If, yeah. he's, if he had those fears, if he had those fears, so how do you get away from the instigator argument if he did not stay in his home? Okay, so, uh, so if we're talking about the aggressor part, the pr yeah. provocation from him being on his porch, yes. you don't have to wait. I believe that was State v. Blue mm -hmm. that I cited in uh, one of the briefs that says you don't have to necessarily wait for the assailant to come attack you. You can meet them like out on the porch. That's still within the cartilage of your home. So that doesn't go to like him provoking um, the attack, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that. And then there also goes to the other point about whether um, he was on the porch already as Mr. Wingate's version is versus what you were talking about, which is the allegation that he saw them coming, then went back in the house and got the gun. And that still doesn't make him the aggressor. He had the lawful right to be on his porch and he could arm himself in anticipation of that conflict. Because like we said, we, he saw Mr. Um, Lewis coming he had previously threatened him before under Mr. Wingate's version of the events. So no aggressor under the law, and that was under like State v. Spalding is that example. And I'm, I'm following you so far. So are, do we have any forensic evidence to 
cut against or for the argument that he says that the um, individual was ch charging towards him. Obviously, there's a discrepancy of whether he got off the four-wheeler and immediately started coming or whether he stayed there. I think, you know, there's, there's testimony from law enforcement that there was a pavement walkway near the porch. Um, talk to the court about the, the, the evidence that supports, um, you know, the argument. Well, I don't think the forensic evidence helped very much because there was testimony that one of the officers was saying he was looking for, like, blood on the area of the walkway and in the yard, mm -hmm. but it was dark. So he's saying, I didn't see anything, but obviously that doesn't, like, negate the argument either way just because he didn't see anything. They said he didn't have luminol, so the forensic evidence in that part wasn't very helpful. The only other evidence that we could talk about was the finding of the the bullet casings, but that kind of just goes towards Mr. Wingate's argument that he fired some warning shots, you mm -hmm. know? Let me, um, it's Ms. Topping, is that correct? Say that again? Um, it's, it's Hopping, is that correct, your name? Washington. Okay, I've got it. Did you sign the brief? Yes, I wrote okay, it. Okay, hold on a minute. I just want to make sure. I may have had the wrong case. Give me one minute. It's Washington. I got it. It's Washington. I don't know if it's yes, I've got it right here. Ms. Washington, let me step back before what allegedly brought this all about, and that is that your client supposedly shot the shotgun twice into the ground when um, Mr. Lewis's son mm -hmm. was riding. Um, the, the evidence at trial, we've got a private street private road mm -hmm. intersects with a public street, is that correct? It's the Green Pasture Road is the road that they're calling the Homeowner Association Road, yes. That's private and property. Then, exactly, yeah. and then yes, and then Mr. Wingate's property is like off that to this side. Okay, but does he also front on the public street too? I think, because it was kind of weird because there was a, they were calling this like Pike, a turnaround area. It's not Green Pasture Road, but it kind of abuts his property right but i believe that pike is considered public what did the state's evidence at trial show regarding where mr lewis's son was and where your client was when mm. his first two shots were fired so mr wingate was on the porch when on he his fired porch. yes because his statement to the police and in interviews and stuff is that he fired his shotgun down to the right of the porch when the son rode by. Twice. And the state's, mm -hmm. and the state's evidence is the son is just testifying that he was on Green Pasture um, Road, that private road. Not that he went into Mr. Wingate's yard or anything like that. All right, so basically, if that's true, mm -hmm. taking the light most favorable to the state, um, Mr. Lewis's son would have a right to be where he was, correct? Mm -hmm. And there's there's no issue with that. Okay, so the next part of that is that was a triggering event that caused Mr. Lewis to come. Mm -hmm. And there's no dispute that he was in your client's yard on your client's property and not on the road, or is that disputed? Yeah, no, that's not in dispute. He was in the yard. Okay, so do you feel like if someone comes on your property that you've got a right to just begin firing at them? 
if they enter the property unlawfully and forcefully, then under the statutes, they but have I, that that's right. That's not my question. We'll get there in a minute. Mm -hmm. Does somebody merely trespassing on your property give you a right to use deadly force against them? Just a merely trespassing, no. Okay. All right. So if his mere presence standing alone was not enough, I don't think there's any evidence that Mr. Lewis was armed. Is that correct as well? He was not armed. Okay, so you got an unarmed well, person. I should say they found a pocket knife in his pocket, but he didn't, like, he wasn't swinging it. Okay, so, so at most he was trespassing, or is he, or is he doing more than that? No, he was doing more than that. Okay, so he didn't have a weapon, or at least if he did, it was in his pocket. What is a person entitled to as far as notice or warning before deadly? forces asserted against them, even if you're on that person's property? If you're merely trespassing, just walking in? No, I'm asking, at what point, is there any duty to, to warn someone to get off your property, stop where you are, put your hands up, whatever you want to say? Is there any duty to inform that you're getting ready to employ deadly force? Uh, no, under the statutes, there is no such duty. Okay, but is it is it true that it must be in response to a threat of imminent bodily harm to yourself or others. Is that correct? To use the deadly force under the statutes? Yes. That presumption creates that um, fear of the imminent deadly harm or serious bodily harm under the statutes. So, so your point is, if someone is standing on your prop on your property yelling at you, calling you names, you could you could use your gun without warning. It's tacked onto that, right? So that's the... That's really, I want to take it step by step. Mm -hmm. So we've already admitted that he he was on the property, mm -hmm. but trespassing. Mm -hmm. You admitted that he was not armed, at least did not have anything in his arm. He may have had a pocket knife in his pocket. Mm -hmm. uh, you've also said that the evidence of provocation was his mere presence couple with words evidence of provocation on whose part are we talking about mr lewis yeah well, that would put mr wingate mr wingate that would give that would allow mr wingate to employ deadly force that's what mm -hmm. take, take so, me take me there yeah so the trespassing gets us to the unlawful entry which is what's required under the statutes right and then I think the, the cursing and all that is what goes to the forcefulness part. So I think when you're coupling those facts, then yes, he has that right under the statute. Okay, there's an old adage that's taught in first year law school in torts. Mere words cannot constitute an assault. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Mm -hmm. So if someone's screaming at you at the top of the lungs, calling you every dirty name in the book, does that allow you to employ deadly force? I feel like there's a difference between just talking about arguing with someone and provoking deadly force and what's allowed under the statutes under the presumption. Well, I understand, but, but the presumption doesn't allow you to accomplish the act. Mm -hmm. the, 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 accomplish, the presumption may shift the burden mm -hmm. back to the state. The state's evidence in light of fair for it shows presence, unarmed words. And is that enough? I would say it's enough. Okay, take me there. So no warning required. Mere words, no warning. Because mm -hmm. this is like Coons where we had the, 
the man was doing the same thing. He entered uh, Mr. Coon's yard. He's yelling at him. In that case, Coons had already told him not to come into his yard, right? But like I said, that's not required under the statute. And this court in Coons determined that was sufficient. Okay, so there's no duty to say stop. Put your hands up. Leave my property. Nothing. You don't there have is to. no duty to do that. But Mr. Wingate's version of events was that he did tell him to stop. So it happened, but it's not required under the statutes. Okay, let me put it a different way then. What degree of reasonableness, if any, is required under the statute on behalf of the person who employs deadly force? Let me look at the specific language. Because as far as I understand it, as long as the presumptions... So as long as the presumptions apply, that presumption includes the reasonableness, right? They have, they're presumed to have that reasonable fear of imminent death or serious bodily harm when those conditions apply, which is that the person is in the process of unlawfully and forcefully entering or had unlawfully and forcefully entered the home. And the person who used the defensive force of Mr. Wingate was aware of this unlawful and forcible entry. So we, I don't think we have to get Where's to the- Where's the force? Hmm? Where's the force? The force? Mm -hmm. The force is entering the yard when he didn't have the permission and that charging towards him under Mr. Wingate's version of the events. Okay, but isn't the facts viewed in the light most favorable to the state or in, in the light most favorable to you? For the, to get the self-defense instruction? Mm -hmm. It should be the um, light most favorable to the defendant. I believe I cited Coons for that. Okay. Let's say that's so. So if the show, if the state showing was he was merely present, unarmed, and was shouting, and the jury believed that, wouldn't that give the jury a basis to overcome the presumption? Agree, if we agree with you, the presumption's there. Wouldn't that make it a jury issue on whether or not his actions were reasonable? We're overcoming the presumption. Sorry, I'm going to look at the language of the statute. You've got it in your brief, right? Yeah, it should be in the uh, appendix for you all. If he's just standing there shouting. Basically, oh. if, if the state said he wasn't in fear of death or seriously bodily harm, this guy was merely present, yelling with no weapon. How can he have, quote, a fear of death or serious body harm and make that a jury argument? Wouldn't the jury be entitled at that point to say, even if there was a presumption, you're not entitled to it under these facts? I don't think so, because right, I feel like it depends on what he's yelling, because he had already threatened him in the past. And Isn't that a factual question for the jury, is my point. What, the question of whether his fear was reasonable? Wh whether he's entitled to the use of the, the self-defense to overcome even the statutory presumption if he had that presumption. Whether you get the presumption isn't a question of fact for the jury, but the question of whether the state overcame the presumption is the question of fact for the jury, yes. And are you saying the state's evidence is insufficient as a matter of law? Yes, I don't think the state's evidence overcame that presumption of fear. 
I guess my question would be, if you're talking about overcoming this presumption of fear, wouldn't the jury be the better viewer of that in light of some of the evidence that the defendant came out while the uh, victim was on the ground, took the keys out the four-wheeler, moved the truck, um, told you know dispatcher, you know, I did what I had to do. Aren't there facts that would allow the jury to evaluate that that question of fear? Aren't there facts to evaluate before the jury? There are facts. There are facts to evaluate it. Yes, but the facts. And, like you're, I, saying, I, and you're saying those facts would be insufficient for the state to overcome, even though those facts could be something that the question, the jury could use. Yeah, because coming out, he already shot Mr. Lewis, so he's already on the ground. He knows he shot him twice. There's no like. There's nothing to be scared of. He like overcame the threat. So I don't think him coming out rebutted that presumption after he already shot. I guess my question would in. be, well then if that's the question, why would he be going to take the keys out of the four-wheeler? He said in his statement to the police, he took the keys out so they couldn't move it. I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm just saying that just, well, that and, and I guess, he wasn't but scared. I, but that is, that is the question that, that I have for you, is mm -hmm. if it doesn't make sense, isn't it for the jury to be the better reviewer of whether it makes sense or not? I mean, yeah, and they got to decide that. That doesn't, okay. yeah. Okay, but let me ask you this then. Let's say that even that the presumption would apply to the first shot. Once it became apparent that the uh, Mr. Lewis had was leaving, uh, and your client shot a second time. Even if he was entitled to the presumption and the benefit under the first shot, what would allow him to to do that when the when Mr. Lewis was obviously moving away from the house? I mean, a couple things. I don't think because we're talking about two different versions, right? So the state. So is it your client's position that he continued to come forward even after the first shot? Yes, his version is that Mr. Lewis didn't stop coming forward until he fired the second shot. And then even the judge himself, because the state and during the charge conference had asked for that, um, what is it? that specific thing that rebuts the presumption, the one about the person leaving Right, and the court determined that they weren't entitled to that instruction because there was nothing to show that Mr. Lewis was fleeing or leaving the area, as you said, right? And then getting to what makes him be allowed to fire the second shot, when the presumptions are triggered and they aren't rebutted, you're permitted to use the deadly force, right? So I don't think there was an issue with him firing two shots because once he's allowed to use deadly force, He's allowed to use deadly force. Well, if the facts were as as it was said that the, the man had, was leaving and had turned away to, to move away from your client, at some point that presumption would stop, would it not? It, it wouldn't give him the right to, to, it would not give him the right to continue to fire. If he was actually leaving, yes. Or if he was on the ground. Or if he was on the ground already. If he was rendered. I mean... <laughs> And that kind of goes to like the question of the excessive force part, right? Because I kind of think the excessive force, when we're talking about excessive force, it has like the two, or what I'm phrasing as like two parts, like the proportionality, which is deadly force meets deadly force. And this kind of, I guess you kind of call it like the 
overkill part, like what you're saying, if the person is on the ground already after the first shot, do they need to fire the second shot? And that's kind of where we're getting at like the, well, if you're permitted to use deadly force, then you can use deadly force, right? So it's kind of like he's just ensuring there's no more threat. And of course, that didn't happen in this case, right? Like he wasn't already on the ground and then he shot him again. Well, the, the evidence tended to show that, that he was leaving. Mr. Lewis, the state's evidence tended to show, as I read it, that Mr. Lewis, after the first shot, was, was leaving, had turned to leave when the second shot um, was fired. Yeah, he said he was turning to leave when he was shot, and he was shot in the side. So I think that just comes down to if he's already fired in the second shot and he's in the process of turning, you can't, like, unfire the bullet. It's not like he was clearly walking away and his back was turned. And I, I guess that, that leads to my questions as far as the allegations by the defendant that he fired and just the physical possibility of what he said he did. Mm -hmm. right? There was a, a, a list of things he said he did once he was in the interview with detectives, correct? Mm -hmm. And so, because he didn't list those things when he was talking to the dispatch, but when he sat down with detectives, he went through a list of things he did, correct? And so, the testimony from the detectives and from the video was that he shot, he fired, uh, I think, two warnings, or at least one warning shot. He shouted two verbal warnings, and then ultimately shot the victim twice. Is that kind of that list of things? I think that's what he said in that interview, yeah. And so those things would have taken a period of time to take place just because of what you have to do to go through those lists. If those things did take place in a light most favorable to your client, uh, the detect there was testimony from the detectives that it there was difficulty in kind of evaluating the distance that the victim was charging towards your client, correct? Mm -hmm. And the physical possibility that all these things actually took place. So if there is, again, the discrepancy of whether these things are plausible or not, whether it's in a light most favorable to the state or light most favorable to your client, under Lee, isn't it to the jury to evaluate these facts? I mean, it's up to the jury to evaluate the facts, but that doesn't take away from the prejudice argument, which I think is what you're getting at, like whether the story is plausible, it doesn't prejudice him under my arguments as far as the aggressor instruction and the excessive force. Well, ultimately, do you have facts saying that what the victim said didn't happen? Are there any but, facts? There's, there, so basically there's facts cutting both ways, correct? Yeah. So how is your client prejudiced if there's facts cutting both ways and the jury is the, the true identifier of those facts? Because if the jury buys the version that the aggressor, excuse me, if the jury believed Mr. Wingate was the aggressor because the trial court gave that instruction, then he's prejudiced based on that alone. So I don't even, think even if there's facts argued by the state that that he was. Yeah, I mean, they can argue that he's the aggressor. But I'm saying under the law, he was like legally not the aggressor. 
So if the jury believed that he was the aggressor for shooting toward the teenage son before he shot Mr. Lewis, and like I said, that doesn't, that's not, that doesn't make him an aggressor under the law, excuse me, but the jury believed that those facts made him an aggressor, then he was prejudiced because that deprived him of the benefit of self-defense because the instruction is if you're the aggressor, you don't get the benefit of self-defense. So that's where he was prejudiced. And I did quickly before I sit down because I see him in my rebuttal. Did want to make that point that under the law, the fact that he shot toward um, Micah before Mr. Lewis arrived did not make him an aggressor under the law. I'm not saying his actions were right. I'm not defending that. But under the law, he was legally not an aggressor because we have to look at whether the person is an aggressor at the time they use defensive force, which would be the time that he shot Mr. Lewis. And he was not the aggressor because Mr. Lewis had entered his yard, threatened him, and charged at him. And I'll reserve the rest of my time. Okay. Thank you, Ms. Washington. Here from the state. Thank you, Your Honors. <clears throat> May it please the court, my name is Justin Eason. I'm an assistant attorney general for the North Carolina Department of Justice representing the state of North Carolina, the appellee in this case. The state contends that the aggressor doctrine was appropriately applied in this case because the evidence permits the inference that the defendant was acting as the aggressor at the time the lethal force was used. The defendant provoked the initial altercation by shooting at an unarmed teenager and then waited on his porch by his own admission with his weapon for the victim to arrive and then shot the victim twice, the second shot striking the victim in the side as he turned to flee the altercation. Let's, let's go back to the threshold requirement. Let me just walk you right down the same questions I asked Ms. Washington. Do you, does the state concede that special protections of self-defense are afforded to, the, to a homeowner? Absolutely, and in this and, case. And, and does that extend to the cartilage in the yard of the residence? Yes, it does, Your Honor. Okay, so the presumption would apply? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, so if the presumption applies, what, and, and we're, we're asking for an instruction here, we're not asking for the jury to decide whether or not, but if the, if, if the facts that I stated, whether he was armed, whether he was threatening or whatever, if, if someone is in your yard or cartilage and you're feeling threatened by that, you get the benefit of the presumption. Your Honor, I believe that uh, even whether or not, you get the benefit of the presumption, and that includes the presumption that you are in fact feeling threatened. Okay, so the testimony, for at least in the light most favorable defendant, was when, when Mr. Lewis's son was riding, he shot the shotgun into the ground, right? Correct. So um, we're not in the city limits here, right? No, Your Honor. Uh, so does a person have a right to go on the front porch of their yard and shoot their shotgun in the ground? Your Honor, I think that the question is whether or not a person has a right to use a weapon to place another person in fear for their person. Because All right, so when you dis I understand, but if I'm on my porch and I just want to go out and see if my gun's working, and I shoot two shots into the ground on my porch and you happen to be passing by, 
I mean, how, how is that, how does that deprive, how does that make me an aggressor? Well, Your Honor, I don't think it does, uh, but in this instant case, that's not what any of the evidence shows. This wasn't a weapons check or a, a negligent discharge or anything like that. The, the defendant, by his own admission, shot the ground uh, outside of his porch because he was tired of people riding the four-wheelers up and down the road. So uh, it, it's a question, I think, of the intent of the person using the weapon. Would he have a right to do that? Uh, would he have a right to do that? No, Your Honor. I don't think that he would have a right to employ uh, the threat of lethal force to a person not on his property. If a fox was coming to eat my chickens and I walked out on my porch and shot the shotgun to, to, to cause the, the fox to run off, would I be allowed to do that? Yes, Your Honor, if you attempt And if somebody was walking down the street and they felt threatened by that, would that deprive me or make me an aggressor? No, Your Honor. So now we got to find out where this fits in that line. So the evidence doesn't show that Mr. Lewis's son was struck. It does not. It does not show that he ever pointed a gun at him? I believe that the testimony of Micah was that he heard the pellets whizzing by him, but it does not show that, but there's an obvious implication from that, that the weapon was pointed at him, but no, there's no direct testimony to that effect, Your Honor. Okay. So does that enable his father to then trespass on the defendant's property in a threatening manner? I don't know that it enables it, Your Honor, but it is something that the court must consider when determining the appropriateness of an aggressor instruction. Why not just let the jury decide it? Well, I, th I think that letting the jury decide is the right thing. Properly instructed. Properly instructed. And in order to get to that proper instruction, the standard is if there is evidence which permits the inference. That's all that it takes, is permitting an inference that the defendant was the aggressor at the time, that that is sufficient to garner the aggressor doctrine instruction. And there are a number of different factors that the courts can consider when determining uh, whether or not there is evidence to permit an inference. Uh, right. what, what is the evidence permitting the inference, according to the state? In this case or generally? Here. In this case, uh, both the victim and another witness testified that the victim had not made any threats to the defendant at the night of the shooting. Uh, witnesses testified that the victim never approached the defendant once he got off of the four-wheeler, that he stood at the four-wheeler, and I believe that uh, Mr. Uh, uh, the, the cousin, uh, Mr. Lewis, said that, he, that Mr. they made no move towards him at all that night. Uh, the circumstances that precipitate the shooting are a factor that can be concerned uh, with the aggressor doctrine, according to the court in Corbett. And the circumstances that precipitated the shooting in this case are the defendant discharging a shotgun in the direction of the victim's child. And the trial court appropriately observed that but for that uh, interaction, there's no call for either of these parties to have met that night. Uh, the testimony uh, by the defendant, uh, pardon me, the testimony by a witness that the defendant told the victim, I've got something for you prior to retrieving the shotgun, and then his statements, get off my property, that'll teach you. Uh, the, the victim attempting to flee only to be shot a second time. The fact that the victim suffered grievous injuries, whereas the victim was completely, un or the, pardon me, the defendant suffered no injuries, and the victim was grievously injured and spent 14 weeks in the hospital. That the defendant was the first and only person to use any force, let alone deadly force, and that the victim was unarmed while the, 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 the well, pardon me, that the defendant had a shotgun and the victim was unarmed. All of these are factors, Your Honor, that a court uh, could reasonably infer and that, it, uh, that the defendant was the aggressor at the time. And so 
that's the standard. All right. What, what do you say to the argument that the Castle Doctrine, defense of home, including the curtilage, that you cannot be an aggressor uh, I un don't, under the curtilage defense? I, I don't know of any law that says that. I don't know of anything that's been cited to that. I feel that uh, specifically the, the statute includes uh, 1451.4, specifically says that the privilege of the aggressor, or pardon me, the rights of the Castle Doctrine do not apply in cases where the, the defendant initially provokes the use of force against him herself or herself. What about, what, why couldn't you argue that the Mr. Lewis, by virtue of being on the, on the property of the defendant's residence or within the curtilage, by definition, is the aggressor? Your Honor, I think that you could make the argument that by his presence and under the circumstances that the defendant is entitled to the presumptions. However, there is still sufficient questions of fact as from those other circumstances to which I uh, alluded that permit the inference. And after the point that that has been threshold has been reached, then it is the function of the jury to weigh the evidence and make the determination uh, as to which they believe. Well, again, again, I'm sorry. Well, again, why, why wouldn't his presence coupled with his words, just the fact he's there, the man's in his own house on his own porch, right? Yes, Your Honor. He didn't go out to the road? No, Your Honor. Uh, your Honor, I feel like this is very analogous to State versus Lee. Uh, State versus Lee had similar fact patterns, and the defendant was in his vehicle, which is entitled to the same protections as the home place under the Castle Doctrine statute, and there were conflicting stories. And that's uh, what, the, what the court found in those cases, is that uh, where there is conflicting evidence about a sequence of events which lead to the defendant shooting the victim, the evidence is sufficient for a jury to find that the defendant was the aggressor and therefore the barring that defense. So in this case, Your Honor, uh, he's entitled to those presumptions and in this case he was offered, uh, he was given those jury instructions. And no one is suggesting that that was inappropriate. The question becomes whether or not the state provided sufficient evidence to permit the inference that at the time the defendant was the aggressor. And where that threshold is met, the jury instruction is not error. It is, it is the function of the jury. Well, taking it a step back, and on top of the questions by uh, Judge Tyson, talk to the court about the time frame that elapsed from the son being um, placed in what I think you characterize as fear, and then going home and telling dad, how does that time elapse uh, cut against the state's case as far as the time at which the fear was there and then him coming back to the residence to address the defendant? So, Your Honors, uh, the state would contend that the time was, the entirety of the time was the time that it took for uh, them to traverse the, the Green Pastures Meadow Road all the way to the end and then uh, back. But the, the distance and the time are not the most important aspect there, Your Honor. The state would contend that uh, while there was a passage of time, that the real, the real factor that the court should consider is that this was part of a continuing series of events. There is a shooting, there is transit, there's information relayed, there's another transit, there's a second shooting. And by his own statement, the defendant 
to, by his own statement to law enforcement, the defendant fired his gun and then waited on his porch with his shotgun for the victim to come back. Uh, this suggests that the defendant anticipated that his action would provoke a response that would be pretty immediate, that he was not even going to go inside, that he was going to wait on his porch for the victim to arrive. And that, Your Honors, we would say shows a sort of succession of events that uh, overcome the temporal distance of having that type of transit, Your Honor. Uh, intervening events rather than just the passage of time were the distinguishing factor for the court in Miller. In Miller, the defendants and the victims, uh, the victims went on to have lunch with their wives and the defendants went to their barn to fix machinery and things like that and, and so there was not a continuing series of events, whereas in this case, it's very straightforward. The defendant shoots at a child, the child returns home and explains what has happened. The defendant is awaiting the arrival of the parent on his porch with a shotgun. And uh, that tends to, to suggest, Your Honor, the state would contend that he anticipated that this would provoke a violent response. And I think that that also goes back to the uh, aggressor doctrine question generally, because in uh, State v. Spalding, uh, uh, which was cited in the defendant's brief, uh, courts have found important that when the defendant arms themselves that they use no language tending to incite an affray or make no show of force. Now, firing a shotgun is a very clear show of force, uh, even if it's done at a, at a, at a third party. And, uh, Your Honor, it is, while it is not language tending to incite an affray, I can think of no, uh, the state contends that there's no possible uh, action more likely to incite an affray than an assault on someone's child. So it's, it's the state's contention that the victim coming on the property um, and whatever verbal altercation took place was, was a show of force that entitled him to the, uh, to the jury instruction of self-defense. Your Honor, it, that is sufficient viewed in the light most favorable to the defendant, which is the standard for the determination of whether or not they are entitled to self-defense instruction but it is not in the light most favorable to the defendant when it goes to the question of the aggressor doctrine. That is just a review of all of the evidence to determine whether it permits the inference that the defendant was in fact the aggressor. So the, the castle doctrine in and of itself um, gives a greater right of self-defense to a defendant. We agree with that. It permits, uh, the, yes, Your Honor, it, okay. it, it permits inference, it permits, pardon me, so if, if it raises a presumption of deadly force or cite the statute or serious bodily harm. It does. Um, and a homeowner acts in reliance of that. If Mr. Um, Wingett took Mr. Lewis's presence and words as sufficient provocation to raise a fear of serious bodily arms or deadly. Would he, would he not have been entitled to defend himself with use of deadly force? I, I believe, Your Honor, that the, that the if in your statement is doing the heavy lifting, and that if is a question for the jury because those presumptions are still are rebuttable. Right, but didn't the trial judge basically strip that away? Didn't the trial judge, by his instruction, saying, if, if you find he was the aggressor, you, you don't apply the presumption. Uh, again, that it, it's a binary, it's, it's, a, it's not a, 
either or question. It, it's a preceding question. And the first question is, are they entitled to use this? Yes, except for in the condition where they are the aggressor. And so he was still entitled to and received all of the self-defense instructions. Uh, so that doesn't put a homeowner, that doesn't put a homeowner really in any better position than a man on the street. If, if, if you apply that, if, if, if the litmus test is going to come down about who started the fight, then the Castle Doctrine would be rendered meaningless, would it not? No, the Castle Doctrine still applies. However, it's been specifically exempted that a person can't taunt or abuse or start an affray and then use the Castle Doctrine to excuse or justify what use of force they do later. That, that, let's, that's let's talk about the aggressor then. When, when young Lewis went home and told his daddy that he had, quote, unquote, been shot at, um, what would have been the proper response for Mr. Lewis to do at that time? Your Honors, I believe that Mr. Lewis had the proper response. He went to go speak to his neighbor about what had happened. So wouldn't it be a proper response to call law enforcement? That would have been another proper response, yes. Okay, and taking someone else with you, I mean, uh, is that proper too? Yes, Your Honor. Is that a greater show of force? I don't think that the... I don't think that the mere presence of an extra individual is necessarily a show of force. We've had cases that said that when you have other people with you, that that tends to communicate a message of willingness to join in the person, to, you know, in the fight. Uh, all of that presupposes that there is any indication that Mr. Lewis went there to fight. And the victim is, or pardon me, the victim's testimony and the witness testimony both indicate that he had made no aggressive moves or any threats at that time or any other time. Uh, the defendant's uh, statements to the police officer, again, not his 911 call, just his statements to the police officer, are the only time where any verbal threat is mentioned. Uh, so, so you're saying that Mr. Lewis just went there and got off and didn't say a word? I, your Honor, I believe that the evidence was that he got off and he very likely raised his voice and wanted to know why the, the defendant was shooting at his son. And I think that's well supported by the record. Where does, uh, I guess, the, the, the Benner case, as far as the proportionality with the use of force, how does that, uh, how was the court supposed to evaluate that in the facts that you're arguing for? Uh, well, Your Honor, uh, Benner held that the proportionality rule in, inherent in the requirement of defensive force uh, still uh, applies to Castle Doctrine. That was extended in State v. Walker by a panel of this court uh, to hold that uh, where there is no duty to retreat and specifically Castle Doctrine uh, cases, uh, they don't obviate the proportionality requirement. They merely, again, uh, apply that presumption that it's appropriate, the same way they apply a presumption of reasonable fear of imminent bodily harm. But those are ultimately, again, questions for a jury. Those are issues of fact if there is sufficient evidence in the record to render them issues of fact. So under the analysis, him using a, a shotgun as far as proportionality based upon him saying he was fearful of him getting beat up would be proportional under that analysis? Under that analysis, he would be entitled to the presumption that it was, but it would still be for the jury to determine from the evidence whether or not that was, in fact, both a reasonable fear and a proportional use of force. Uh, we would also note, uh, while we're talking about the excessive force uh, issues, Your Honor, 
uh, that uh, the defendant was the one who inque requested instructions under 308.45 and 308.80. Uh, the language of 308.80 says that it's to be used to, in lieu with or together with 308.45. So in effect, when the defendant requested these instructions that included the excessive force language, they invited the error for which they now object. But all of the question as to excessive force, Your Honor, the state would contend is foreclosed by Benner and Walker. These are recent uh, Supreme Court and Court of Appeals cases that are directly on point of the issue of excessive force. Uh, the instructions that were given to the jury on the question of excessive force were accurate statements of the law. They were supported by fact, and so to give them is not error. Looking, I'm on page 12 and 13 of the record. Looking at the bottom of 12, top of page 13, on the instruction that the judge gave. Furthermore, self-defense is justified only if the defendant is not the aggressor. Yes, Your Honor. So I get, go back to my earlier question. Doesn't that strip the defendant of the presumption? No, Your Honor. It, it's an if statement, and it's, it's for the jury to determine from the evidence who they choose to believe. They can either believe the defendant, Mr. Wingate, or they can believe the victim. Uh, they have the province of the jury as, as the trier of fact. It, it does not strip him of those protections, provided that, uh, you know, the evidence supports them. Going on down on page 13 state's burden to, to say he did not act in lawful defense of the home or place of residence. Defendant has justified using deadly force only such much force as being used to prevent forceful or to terminate an intrubal's law or entry into the home or place of business. And we've all agreed that includes a yard. Yes, Your Honor. Um, so there's no dispute that, that he was entitled to the, the presumption. You agree with that? Absolutely, Your Honor. The, the state did not dispute it at the time of the jury charge conference and does not dispute it now. And there is no duty to retreat, as the judge said as well. That's correct, Your Honor. Um, a person who enters a person's home or place of business is presumed to be doing so with the intent to commit an unlawful act involving force or violence. That is the presumption, yes, Your Honor. So the defendant could could act based upon that reasonable belief? The, defendant, uh, the defendant's actions still must be reasonable objectively under the circumstance. The, the objective reasonableness of his fear or apprehension of bodily harm, uh, that is still an element of self-defense under the Castle Doctrine, uh, under 1451.3. It's presumed thanks to the Castle Doctrine, but again, those are rebuttable presumptions. So it becomes a question for the jury when there is sufficient evidence to put that question of fact to the jury. Okay. The judge also said, I'm on the bottom of page 14, it is for you, the jury, to determine the reasonableness of the defendant's belief in the circumstances that appeared to the defendant yes. at the time. Would not be justified using deadly force if the defendant initially provoked the use of force against himself. The problem I'm having is if, if, if someone's in my house, I'm not going to ask. 
I'm going to ask questions later. So isn't that the whole basis for the Castle Doctrine, that you are entitled to act in self-defense, including deadly force, if you reasonably believe the presumption is someone's there do you harm, right? Correct. And if you react to that, then you're entitled to the, the immunity that's in the statute. If you react to that, yes, Your Honor. If, however, your actions are what brought that person to your house, that is no longer a reaction. So um, somebody's standing in my house at night. <clears throat> I'm supposed to say, what are you doing here? No, Your Honor. If someone is in your house at night, you are entitled to the presumptions that you have a reasonable fear of uh, imminent bodily harm. Uh, you, as would anyone else, be entitled to a, the reasonable belief that uh, a presumption that they were there uh, to uh, commit an act of uh, a criminal act or including threat of bodily harm. If, however, uh, when the lights came on, it came out that it was your, it, it, it was someone who had a right to be there or a law enforcement officer or some other circumstance, that again, there are certain circumstances where those presumptions are uh, automatically not, an, uh, are, are automatically and enumeratedly disqualified. And there are other facts that can rebut those presumptions. And so uh, making sure that the jury is aware of both the presumption that they have, but also telling them that they have the obligation to weigh the facts as they understand them is, again, it, it does not undermine the protections uh, guaranteed by the Castle Doctrine. It, it is the province of the jury in such cases to make those determinations. If your honors have no more question, I will cede my time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Rebuttal, Ms. Washington. Okay, just some quick points. I think Judge Tyson was starting to get to this point. So I get no one wants to hear about somebody shooting at their kid. That's not cool. But under the law, that was did not make him the aggressor, right? Because there were two separate events. They're not a continuous chain of events. Because if Mr. Lewis had went up there and gotten to put his hands on Mr. Wingate, right, he wouldn't be justified under defense of others because when Mr. Wingate shot at Micah, right, Mr. Lewis wasn't present right there to defend him in that moment. It wasn't contemporaneous. So that's why I'm saying it's too remote in time to impact Mr. Wingate's theory of self-defense, right? He wasn't the aggressor under the law for shooting at Micah before, excuse me, before he had to use defensive force against Mr. Lewis. M Micah had to ride a half mile back home. He left the scene of the event that was done at that point. And then Mr. Lewis rode a half mile back. So it's too remote in time to impact that theory of self-defense. He wasn't an aggressor under the law for that reason. And then the other point for the aggressor, this conversation of whether he was on the porch waiting with the gun already, or whether he was going back in the house and saying, I've got something for you. I feel like that's just talking trash. If he has a point, if he has the right to arm himself where he has the lawful right to be on his porch in anticipation of a conflict, that doesn't make him the aggressor under the law. Ms. Washington. How does the proportionality rule play into the facts that you have for your client? And we've already established that 
Um, he didn't brandish a weapon. Um, mm. Words alone, you know, depending upon the case, uh, might not act as, as a weapon. How does the proportionality doctrine play into the evaluation of whether your client used excessive force in the facts that we have in front of us? Okay, so proportionality, we're just talking about deadly force has to meet deadly force. So the idea that he was in fear of his life for the, or he feared imminent death or serious bodily harm, I would argue that it was proportional. He had already threatened to, and excuse my language, the, um, the statement from Mr. Wingate that was that he was going to fuck him up. We already have cases in this court that talk about, you know, hands and feet could be considered deadly depending on the circumstances. So I think the proportionality requirement is fine. That doesn't take away the excessive force argument. I'm thinking when I'm talking about um, excessive force not being a disqualifier under the statutes, I, what I'm thinking of is that part of excessive force, I think it was Judge Tyson that was kind of getting at it earlier where he said, do you have the right to shoot somebody a second time if they're on the ground? So I think the excessive part, that overkill part, right, once you're permitted to use deadly force, deadly force is permitted, period. And that's kind of what I'm getting at when I'm saying excessive force isn't a disqualifier. I guess, I guess my question is, is it the, the analysis not to the second shot necessarily, which it can be, but isn't it also required to be able to be evaluated on the initial interaction of what force is actually used? You know, would, would someone use a dynamite stick versus uh, versus a shotgun? That's that's the question for the initial interaction to thwart away that fear of mm. threat of, of deadly force. So my question is, there was it a weapon brandished, or was it a stick, or was it a bat? It was just his hands. and so. I'm, I understand what the other cases say, but my question to you is what facts are in this case that gets your client to use the shotgun versus the hands? Yeah, well, him just charging up at him, threatening him. He already, we already said um, the cousin came with him, so he had that other show of force. So I think showing up with him and his cousin, he's entering the yard, cursing at him. He had already previously threatened, um, threatened to beat him up before. So all of that goes to that. And then, and that's also for those reasons, he talked about the proportionality in um, Benner and Walker. So I still don't think that proportionality argument undercuts my excessive force argument. So, so this, in conclusion, this case is about whether we have the right to defend ourselves in our homes and to what extent. Mr. Wingate's actions toward Micah may have been frowned upon, but they did not make him an aggressor under the law. There were two separate conflicts here. And when Mr. Wingate shot Mr. Lewis, he was lawfully using his deadly defensive force as provided by the statutes, and the instructions on the aggressor doctrine and excessive force deprive Mr. Wingate of this defense. We ask that this court reverse and remand for a new trial. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, the case is submitted to the court. We thank you for your arguments, and we um, nothing else coming for the court. We will ask the clerk to adjourn.